Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Probably in the, the Lord said to Samuel, How um, long will you but, grieve uh, you over Saul since I have rejected him Saturday. from being king Isn't that over crazy? Israel? Christmas Fill your is, horn uh, with oil and go. Eve I will send Again, you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Um, for I have provided for myself. It, it a may king be tempting and easy son. to say, oh, It's a Christmas Eve service. I've already got so much I've got going on. I've got family coming in. I've got to make this food. I've got to make that food. Well, the Christmas Eve service is simple. Like, literally, it's very simplistic. It's reading scripture, it's singing Christmas carols. Um, I do talk, but it's like three minutes, which I know you're shocked at, but we'd love to see you there. It's a time for us just to calm ourselves, half hour, 45 minutes at most, probably, depending on how many verses of the songs we sing. And it's a time for us to just refocus our hearts, refocus our minds before the crazy day of, or time of family coming or Christmas Day. Um, and it's a time for us to refocus because it's if you've been like our family the last month, month and a half, getting things, buying presents, thinking about meals, oh, family's coming over, what are we going to do, what are we going to serve, all those things just kind of can be distracting, and uh, the Christmas Eve service is a great way for us to kind of refocus and recenter ourselves as God's people. So I'd, we'd love to see you there. It's at 4 o'clock on Friday um, here, um, and so hopefully we'll see, uh, I'll see you there. Uh, the last seven verses in 1 Samuel, they've centered around Saul, they've centered around his kingship, how he became king, and now, though there's a shift in the focus of the book, David now enters the picture, and though his anointing is in some ways very similar to Saul's, the outcome of the anointing is in very, it's actually very different, vastly different than Saul's. Saul looked the part of king. He was tall. He was strong. But as time went on, and as we've seen, his, his heart became more and more exposed. He may have looked and acted the part of a quote-unquote godly king, but his heart was actually far from God. He had a veneer of spiritual depth. He had a mask of godliness, but a heart of selfish ambition where he was afraid of the people that he was king over more than the God who made him king. Now, David is actually a surprising choice for king. Now, we like to think he's like the standard for us. Uh, when we read the Old Testament, everybody talks about King David, King David, King David, King David. But the reality is, is that he was not expected. It was a surprising choice for king. So surprising that even Samuel himself had to be corrected by God. He says when he sees David's oldest brother walk in front of him, ah, this has got to be the guy. But the Lord says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, Samuel is grieving over Saul's rejection. But God's plan for Israel hasn't suddenly ended because Saul has been rejected. He tells Samuel, stop grieving over Saul. I've rejected him as king, but I have provided another king. So I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to go to Jesse. I have chosen one of his sons as king. Now, there was nothing particularly great about Bethlehem. 
There was nothing really interesting about this village. It wasn't an economic, cultural, or military center. It was, it was a basic village surrounded by sheep pastures. But that's how God works. He works in unexpected and surprising ways. Why would you send me to this podunk of a town in the middle of nowhere? Well, Samuel arrives in Bethlehem to the fear of the village elders, which I just, I, I love that. Samuel walks in. You guys never have that when I walk into the building, do you? Are you here peaceably, Mark? (laughs) Well, there's a reason, okay? You guys know me well enough. But Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, walks into the village and the elders are afraid. They're trembling. Why have you come here? Do you come in peace or is there going to be some sort of judgment brought upon us as a village? That's that's basically the two choices that when the prophet shows up to your town unexpectedly, we're either going to be destroyed or God's going to bless us. And Samuel calms them and he says, he says, I have come to offer a heifer to you or to the Lord to sacrifice to God. So consecrate yourselves and join me in this sacrifice. And so the elders, Jesse and his sons, I didn't know if you realize, if you've heard this story before, David's anointing happened in front of the village elders. The elders, Jesse and his sons, were all consecrated so that they could participate in the sacrifice. And as the sons of Jesse come before Samuel, the first and the eldest catches his eye and he thinks, surely the Lord's anointed is before him or before God. Now, I was reading this this week, and I immediately thought at this point, have you not learned your lesson, Samuel? After what has happened with Saul, one would think that Samuel would focus less on how one looks for the qualifi- as, a, as a qualification for king. And even Samuel, the Lord's prophet, can be distracted by outward appearance. But God rejects the eldest son, and the next, and the next, and the next, until all seven sons of Jesse are rejected by God and there's nobody else. And Samuel says, there's got to be, there's got to be something. There's got to be somebody else. There has to be a son missing because God said to me specifically, one of Jesse's sons will be king. And so he says to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And how difficult as a father to hear these words. Jesse's like, well, yeah, but he's, he's this little one over there, like insignificant. I forgot about the youngest, or I purposely forgot him. There is one more, but, and, and the word youngest here actually means smallest of the lot. He's, there's, there's the, the small kid back there. Um, he's, he's with the sheep. He's, he's keeping watch over them in the field, thinking, why would I need to bring him? There's no reason for me to bring him. Plus, he's doing a job for me. I need him there to watch the sheep for me. And Samuel says, go get him. We're not going to eat until he shows up. David is not like his brothers. He's young, small. He has the menial, though a very important task of caring for the sheep. And when he arrives, he's described as ruddy. I love that. Ruddy. I had to look it up because we just don't use that word. Especially in today's 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 world, uh, today's society, it's called. He's very tanned. He's been sitting in the fields watching the sheep underneath the sun. What what? He's going to be dark. He's going to be ruddy. 
He's got beautiful eyes and he is handsome. And I thought, why in the world would God describe David this way other than just being a description? Like, God says, I don't look at outward appearances, I look at the heart. And then he describes David from the outward appearance. He's a good looking kid, he's not an Igor, he's not ugly. There's nothing wrong with being tanned and handsome with beautiful eyes. The problem is that when that's all that you are. It's not that David's brothers were too handsome to be king. Well, they, they look too much the part, so we're going to get David. No, David walks in and he does look the part to a certain degree. The problem with David's brothers is that their heart did not belong to God. Being a shepherd may have been a menial job, but being a shepherd actually prepared David for what God had planned for him, to be king of Israel. And to remember back to Saul, he, at the beginning of, before he's even anointed king, his, uh, he has some donkeys that get lost, and so him and another one of his servants, they go and they go to find the donkeys, and they can't find the donkeys. And we talk about how he's just a horrible shepherd. He, uh, big donkeys, he can't find them. And then who does God choose? A shepherd. A shepherd boy. All of those hours watching over the sheep, leading them to green pastures, making sure that they had enough water, bringing back the strays to the fold, protecting them from the predators. It was all preparation for David's call to shepherd the people of God. He was a surprising choice, at least from a worldly perspective, but from God's perspective, he was exactly the king that he wanted to lead his people. So he's described as handsome. He's described as beautiful eyes. He's a good-looking kid. There's nothing wrong with that. But his heart is what God saw. A thousand years later, God would once again make a surprising choice. From a worldly perspective, it made no sense that how Jesus came into the world and what he looked like, but by God's plan, Jesus is exactly the king, capital K, that the people of God needed. Like David, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the circumstances of which can only be attributed to the power and the plan of God. Bethlehem was still a simple village, but it had been prophesied 700 years before the time of Christ by Micah that that was going to be the birthplace, birthplace of the Messiah. This is where the Messiah is going to come from. Well, that was 700 years ago. They've been waiting for 700 years, and there's been no Messiah. But who would have thought that it would have been that night? Who would have thought it would have been that little village that the king of kings would be born. In fact, the prophecy had been forgotten even by the king so much that he had to be reminded by the wise. I always say wise men because then you think of the magis, but his wise in, uh, men, his, his counselors. Where is this Messiah going to come from? Well, but from Bethlehem. Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth, an insignificant village again, which isn't mentioned at all in the Old Testament. In fact, it seems that many of Jesus in Jesus' day actually looked upon Nazareth with disdain and contempt. And even Nathaniel, I don't know if you know, you can go to John chapter 1 where, where Nathaniel first hears 
about, I, I believe it's from Philip, that, that there's this Jesus. He's the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, what good can come from Nazareth? And then he goes and sees Jesus, and Jesus says, I saw you when you were sitting underneath that tree. And Nathaniel goes, oh, you are the Messiah. You are the king of Israel. King of Israel is actually how Nathaniel describes Jesus. It's not something that's expected. Jesus may have been from an insignificant village, but Nathaniel and the other disciples quickly learned and believed that he was the king of kings. He was the promised Messiah. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes. His name is Jesus. And like David, we are given a description of Jesus. Did you know that? The Bible physically describes Christ. And you're going, I don't remember. Where, where, where is that found? Where David was tall, tan, beautiful eyes. Jesus, he was a, he was a plain guy. He was a normal guy. He's not described in the New Testament. He's described in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read the whole thing. Listen to this description of the future Messiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, he was op- he, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land, cut out, off out of the land of the living, stricken by the transgression of my people. Yet they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. These are the words of God through the prophet Isaiah describing the coming Messiah. I thought about putting a picture up, a famous picture of Jesus where he's white-skinned, blue-eyed, staring off into the distance. Have you, you guys know which one I'm talking about? But then I thought, you know, of the commandment, thou shalt have no graven images, and I didn't want to do that and be struck by lightning. And I would think less of myself. That picture just bothers the heck out of me for a lot of reasons. But mostly because it depicts him as this young, vivacious, beautiful, very attractive 
Caucasian man. And that's not at all who Jesus was. Isaiah describes him as a young plant whose roots were in dry ground, meaning, as my study Bible says, his origins were not promising. He wouldn't come from a powerhouse of a town with major political or military influences. He would be despised and rejected by men. Think of David. Suffering sorrow and griefs. He's ignored by others. He, he wouldn't be a man who grew up being revered by others because of his heritage. He had no form or beauty that anyone would desire to follow him. In other words, the Messiah would be a normal, run-of-the-mill Jewish man. Dark-skinned, maybe a little gaunt for the time. I mean, who knows what they looked like then. The Messiah was a normal Joe Schmo, run-of-the-mill guy. At least that's how he looked on the outside. His looks did not cry out, follow me. Where Saul was tall and David was handsome, the Messiah was simple. But like David, the Messiah would be a shepherd, not of sheep, but of people. In John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That knowledge, I know the Father and the Father knows me, that's not just like a head knowledge like, oh, I know of the Father. No, it's I have an intimate, deep, personal relationship. My heart is his heart and his heart is my heart. Where David would be willing to risk his life to protect his sheep, Jesus would willingly give his life to save his sheep, to save those who believe in him. So what's the main focus of this passage? I was wrestling with it, and, and I'll be honest with you, if, you're, if you talk to any pastor that, and preacher, the, the tendency is to Okay, so maybe this is just my tendency, but I tend to like get lost with um, the details, in the details. So you, you get focused on a tree and you miss the forest, miss the forest for the trees. And so I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm like, okay, so what is God? What does God teach you through this? What does he really mean by this? And then it's like the obvious staring you in the face, okay? I lost the mayonnaise once and asked Katie where it was, and she says, you mean the one that's right in front of your face? Yes, it's right there. Now it's a joke in my household, ha, ha, ha. This is, this is the point of the passage. It is right in our face. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now there's a second temptation. You can get too detailed, but the, another, another temptation is then to take this main focus of the passage and then immediately apply it, apply it to ourselves, right? In this case, if God looks at the heart, then I need to make sure that my heart belongs to him. Which is true, but is that really what God is trying to say through this passage? Or another application could be that I need to make sure that I'm not judging people simply based upon what they look like. Again, that's absolutely true. I should look at their heart. Or another one, that we should make sure that we choose leaders within the church who have a heart after God and not out of 
selfish ambition like Saul. Again, that, that's true. But is that really what God is getting at in this passage? We have to go back to the original passage to see what's really in focus here. Where Saul was chosen as king because of his outward appearance, David was chosen because his heart belonged to God. Where Saul rejected and disobeyed God, David loved, trusted, and strove to obey God. Where Saul refused to repent of revealed sin, David will immediately repent of his revealed sin. It can easily be and rightly applied to church leadership or to ourselves. But there is a deeper purpose here. What was in common between Saul and David? They were king. You and I are not. When we get to David and Goliath, I will say this a number of times, you are not David. I am not David. So what is he trying to get at here? What's the deeper purpose for this passage other than just to tell us that David is anointed? Both David and Saul were made king to point us to the one true king, the Messiah. Saul was the opposite of the Messiah, making us long for the one who would obey and fulfill the commands of God, saving God's people from all calamities and troubles. David was an imperfect example of what the Messiah would be, driving us to have hope that one day, The Messiah would come, the King would come and save the people of God. But when Jesus of Nazareth came on the scene, he was rejected by many, even today, because he doesn't play or look the expected part of Messiah, or we just don't like him. He wasn't a conquering king who would lead Israel's armies into glorious battle against the Romans. He had no political ties. He had no power or influence over the government in Israel's favor. He was was a wandering teacher from an insignificant village with no outward glory or majesty that would draw people to follow him. What he did have was, well, one, he was God in the flesh. Two, he had a heart after his Father in heaven. And three, he spoke the truth of the kingdom of God. Where, just like the disciple Nathaniel, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, and Christ's heart belonged fully and wholly to obeying the Lord's commands. That's in John chapter 4. Perhaps this passage can challenge us personally with our own heart. Does my heart belong to God? But what it should do first and foremost is drive us to Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God in the flesh. He came to earth as a baby child. I mean, think, think that one through. We celebrate, rightly, the birth of this baby. And yet, really? A baby 
Have you seen a baby? There's no power. They are desperately in need of everything, and they want your attention constantly because they need your attention constantly. This is how God brings in the Messiah? Really? The shepherds needed a host of angels to tell them that this was happening. And they're shocked. Even Mary and Joseph are shocked. This, this is how you're going to work, Lord? Jesus came as a baby so that when he grew up, he could die a horrific death so that we might be saved. And in that, he gave glory to his Father. He came to give his life for, to pay the penalty of death that you and I own, owe for our disobedience to the Father. Again, to glorify his Father and to point us to him and to save us. That's why Jesus came to earth. Not to make Mary feel better about herself. Not to be a really good carpenter. Not to be a military leader, but to die a death that was considered a curse at the time. This is not what we expect. Now, maybe in the church today, we can sit back, we can look at it and go, yeah, we've heard this so many times. He came as a baby. Oh, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. Absolutely, let's give him worship. Let's sit and contemplate that for a little while. The Messiah came as a baby. And if you believe and you follow the king, he will save you. He will save me from all of our calamities and troubles. He will do what Saul never could and what David never could and what all the other kings never could or any king today could. If you believe and you follow and you submit to this baby, the Messiah, he will save you. Yes, from earthly trials, and we've talked about that, how he does that. He will save us even more, especially eternally. He gave eternal life by giving his life in our place. He's a surprising choice to us, but he's, it's not a shock to God. It's not a shock to God. Saul is rejected. Samuel's all up in arms. What is going to happen? What is going to happen? Jesus dies on the cross, and his disciples say, what are, What's going to happen? What's going to happen? It was all part of God's plan. None of it was a surprise to him. None of it was a shock to him. None of it was like, Oh, he's not up in heaven pacing, going, How am I, I going to work this out? I mean, whew, this. Uh, Hmm, okay, so if this happens, but what if that happens? What, no, that's not how God works. God is sovereign, which means he has control over all things. He's providential, which means he moves everything to happen exactly as he wants it to happen. All of this happened. Saul, David, Christ, 
you and me here today, all of it is in His power and in His plan. And if we believe, we are saved. God's choice gives us life. Through Christ, we were saved. It's tempted at Christmas time to get distracted, right? That's why we have a very, try to have a very simplistic Christmas Eve service. We get overwhelmed. We, we think at times, and well, maybe if you're like me, you just get frustrated, right? Like, I got to do this, got to do that, go do that. And then you just, Ugh. but for us, as God's people, this is a reminder to us. If, if God has chosen Christ, and this is why he's chosen Christ, I am not Saul, I am not David. He is trying to point me to the king. And if you're surprised that God would do such a thing, that's exactly how he works. Exactly how he works. But if you believe in Christ, you are saved. And if you believe in him and you are saved, then the challenge for us is to remember. Remember who this Why would Christ come as a baby? Why would God wait 33 years to start, or 30 years to start his ministry, three more years of pain and sorrow, only to be killed on a cross? Why would God do that? Why would he wait a thousand years after David for the Messiah to come? I am not God, you are not God. He has his plan and he knows exactly how it's going to work out. But 2,000 years after Christ, we have the truth of who he is. And so may we rest in peace and in joy and knowing that Christ is the king, that Christ is a surprising choice by God, but he's the only choice that brings life. The only choice. Father, I pray that as we celebrate your son coming to earth, that we would not forget why he came. God, I, I pray that we are surprised. I pray that the, the awe of why you would work it out this way, that you would work salvation in this way is, is mind-boggling. Why you would pick the youngest, the smallest, perhaps even the weakest of Jesse's sons, you know we do not, other than the fact that David's heart belonged to you, your son's heart belongs to you. And so, Father, may we be rest assured in him and find faith in him and believe in him and find eternal life in him, Father. Keep us focused this Christmas, this next week leading up to opening gifts and spending time with family help us not to become so distracted to the point that we forget the craziness, the simplicity, and the utter gloriousness of who you are and what you did through your son. We ask this in your name. Amen.